There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped at 10 and branch microfiber. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. everyone and welcome to police off the cuff real crime stories i'm your host retired nypd sergeant bill cannon a 27 year veteran of the nypd we have what i consider to be um a really good show tonight and it's we're gonna have some laughs but it's also going to be pretty serious uh if you didn't watch this afternoon this is a double header for us i uh did a show earlier with phil grimaldi on the mama who uh apparently uh murdered her husband, then wrote a wrote a book about it, about grieving children. Tonight on the show, we have a very, very special guest, Anna Marcoline. I think it's pronounced Marcoline. And um, she has a podcast called The Badass Confidence Coach Podcast. So she's a, a psychotherapist. Uh, she's a motiva- motivational speaker. She's a coach to people. And she specializes in a lot of the things that all of us in the law enforcement community have a touch of, PTSD. Uh, People out there that watch this show, people have depression, people deal with marital problems, people deal with children, people deal with all kinds of different problems, people deal with grieving. And we're going to make draw a parallel between some of the cases that we've worked. Of course, the Idaho quadruple of Ethan Chapin uh, Zaina Canoto, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Gonsalves, and how that case affected the community. And we'll even touch upon Alec Murdoch and how his uh, craziness and the double murder of his wife, Maggie, and his son, Paul, how did that affect the community? How did that affect the Murdoch family? How did that affect their friends? Trauma. That's another thing uh, that Anna Marcoline is an expert at. And we, I consider myself an expert at it, not necessarily coming from the psychological point of view, but having seen a lot of trauma. And I fully will uh, say that I have a touch of PTSD myself. You know, Phil and I have seen horrific things uh, over the course of our NYPD police uh, career. Um, not just even to mention, we were both uh, first responders to 9-11. So we saw some horrific stuff and I'm not looking for any sympathy from anyone. That's who I am, and it made me who I am today, the nice, lovable guy you see on the screen. So let me just show who we have with some amazing co-hosts tonight also. And a fan favorite, I'm afraid I'm going to lose her soon because she's getting so popular. She's getting offers from Hollywood and everything else. But joining us tonight is attorney Melanie Little, mother of five, and also a really talented actress. Welcome to the show, Melanie. Thank you, Bill. Hi, everyone. I see we have Scotland in the chat, Vancouver in the chat. It's just a worldwide audience tonight. I love that so much. You know, Melanie, it's getting to the the point where they're going to say, what will Melanie be wearing tonight? I have to keep buying new tops. I have sweatpants on the bottom and furry You're like the Vanna White of police off the cuff. (laughs) The Vanna White of police off the cuff. Here she is, Melanie Little. Also working with us tonight. Straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective. The guy's always on a cannoli run. Phil Grimaldi. How you doing, guys? 
Hello, Melanie. And guess what? I'm wearing sneakers and sweatpants under my sport coat, too. I wouldn't doubt if you just you start wearing pants, period. You don't have to. No, it no, no. Your waist, I, you know? I'm, I'm not going to pull a Brian Stelter. No, no. All right. All right. <laughs> and our very, very special guest tonight, and I mentioned her, her podcast, the badass confidence coach. I thought she was going to be like doing dumbbell uh, curls uh, in, uh, before she went on. Anyway, welcome, Anna Marcoline. How you doing, Anna? Hi, Bill. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. It's it's you? great to have you here. And you know something? I don't think that you know our audience has really seen a show much like this before. But uh, here we go. And I, as I told you before we went on the air, we're gonna we're gonna have some laughs. It's gonna be a little light, except when it it needs to be uh, serious. So Anna, when you, wh where did you get that name? First of all, the badass confidence coach. Well, it's interesting because when I first was thinking about branding myself in the social media space, I had a business coach who I would, I, so I would tell my clients in my practice. So I have a private practice in the suburbs of Chicago for 22 years. And I would sit across from all these people and I would listen to all of their life experiences and all the things that, you know, women, men, teenagers, adults, people in their 70s had been through. And they would sit there and they'd feel so down about themselves, depression and anxiety. And I'm sitting across to them going, you're a badass. Do you have any idea what strength it took to, to get through what it is that you went through, your life experience? So it started out by my thinking my clients were badasses. And then my business coach said to me, and one day I was sitting there in a, on a video call going, I don't know what to call myself. As I had like a, I think I had like a Rolling Stones or ACDC t-shirt on. And she's like, you're a badass. So it came from that. It came from her saying to me, you're a badass. And me thinking about all my clients and their stories and the strength that they had. They showed me about all that they got through, the traumas and life experiences so that's where it came from. We're all badasses, really. Well, that's great. You know, uh, Melanie's a, a deadhead. Oh, you know, yeah. Right, uh, the Grateful Dead keeps following me around. I don't <laughs> everywhere I go, they, they are. Isn't that great when you, you know, you have a you have a straight laced job, but you have this little secret? I'm a deadhead, you yeah, know. The hippie chick side of me. I know. That's fantastic. Phil, any comments about the opening here? Well, I just, uh, Anna, did you ever work with any police officers, first responders, firemen, anything of that nature? I worked in the emergency room. I worked in trauma ICU, but I worked in the ER for many years. So, you know, that's a tight knit group of people to, sure. they're like family. And we, I knew all the police um, departments in the area around where I worked because they were always coming in. You got to know everybody really well. So I never went into crisis incident stress debriefing, which is what I was trained in to work with law enforcement and first responders. But I really got to know them when they brought, you know, patients in um, and they came in for like, rape cases. I got to know the police and you got to know those first responders really well. Sure. You know, Anna, we, we were 9-11 uh, first responders and we still go to, uh, there's a Mount Sinai program that we get treated twice a year. And they always ask um, questions about your mental health and your alcohol yeah. use and stuff. And uh, I had this Russian doctor one time. She was, I am a little concerned with your alcohol consumption, you know? And I was like, listen, don't worry about it. You're Russian. You're probably knocking down a bottle of Stoli a day. I go, don't worry about my right. drinking two glasses of wine a day. But I don't, I can say 
I don't have any uh, mental issues with 9-11. I think about it once in a while, but I don't have any, like where there's people that really do have very serious PTSD from 9-11. And it's no joke, absolutely. you know, it's absolutely no joke. No joke. Right, but right. Yeah. I could add, I could add to that because uh, uh, 9-11 was the end of my career. It happened, obviously, 2001. I had already had about 19 years on the police force. I had been in a couple of shootouts and a lot of different traumatic experiences. But I did develop, uh, after 9-11, uh, horrible nightmares that started occurring around 2007. And I was getting, like, panic attacks in my sleep. Naturally, uh, when I went for my screenings, Bill mentioned the World Trade Center Health Program. Uh, I put it off, put it off. Finally, 2007, I went. They offered me uh, psychiatric counseling or regular uh, general counseling. I No, nah, I'm good. I, I don't need it. I don't need it. It took me about three years before I finally went and, and did see a counselor. And uh, basically, the counselor kind of knew uh, a lot about police officers and uh, things that, you know, when you go through your daily day, when you're a police officer, 20 years, you've been in a lot of different uh, traumatic situations and you're active. Uh, you see things a little differently. You know, you go into a mall, you're not uh, focused on what you're buying. You're focusing on what's going on around you. That's it's a called that hypervigilance, Phil. Hypervigilance. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so when, when, when I finally did sit down with a counselor and they knew these things and they basically knew about me and all police officers that were active and went through, you know, uh, 20 years of police or more and military, it was good to, to be on a level playing field with someone and talk about some of the experiences. It took me about, you know, they tried to give me medication. I didn't like any of the medications. They just zonked me out and stuff. But it took me about three years of on and off therapy. And you know, you know what, Anna, you know what cured them? Sambuca with three coffee beans. I think this is a session right now. We're getting into his session right now. He's going to like well, well, down on Phil in his session here. Go on. Well, the, the, on. the bottom line was that after about three years of talking on and off with a therapist without medication, the uh, traumatic nightmares and the uh, the panic attacks basically subsided and, and went away. So it, I highly recommend it. You know, most cops are very macho about seeking out therapy and counseling and stuff like that. It took me a while, but I said, what the hell, let me give it a shot. Uh, I didn't think it was going to be for me, but it turned out as it was and it worked out very well. Wonderful. There's a lot of, there's some really great science out there. Some wonderful treatments out there today for the treatment of PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder and any sort of traumatic event that we have been through, you know, primary, uh, whether you witnessed it yourself or you were a victim of a trauma or you saw a trauma, there's so many great therapies out there. There's, and there's really no need. I mean, I think that many times we have to put our ego aside because there's still a little bit of a stigma around mental health and needing counseling. There is, you know, there EMDR, for example, there are some really wonderful therapies that helps people just get better in a really quick period of time. You don't need to continue to have those nightmares and, you know, be hypervigilant, that can go away. And I think people don't realize that that really can happen for them. You know, Absolutely. I want to draw a, a parallel to the, um, of course, the Idaho murders. Yeah. And the right shortly after this happened, the family went to the University of Idaho and they had a big rally, uh, a ceremony for the four students, uh, Ethan Chapin, Zena Canodal, Madison Mogan, and, and Kaylee Gonsalves. And this is the mother of Ethan Chapin. And I so admired her. And I'm going to play a little of this. We are 
eternally grateful that we spent so much time with him. And I want to remind you that that's the most important message that we have for you and your families is to make sure that you spend as much time as possible with those people because time is precious and it's something you can't get back. But these girls were absolutely beautiful. They've been friends since sixth grade. It's a shame and it hurts, but the beauty of the two always being together is something that will, will it comforts us, it lets us know that they were with their, their best friends in the whole world. Terry, look, we're still... You gotta so admire uh, those people, the, fan, the, the parents of those students, and just naturally as parents, we put ourselves in that situation and we think of how, how do you get through that? Melanie, since you're the mother of five, I think you are the most qualified of the three of us to talk about that. I mean, how do you get through that? I don't know. You know, grief is a process. There's, you know, I remember reading that book that Kubler-Ross book, I think, right? On death yeah. and dying, there's stages of grief that people go through, anger, denial. You can maybe tell us what they are on a later, but, um, you know, for these parents to get up there and try and, and, and make something out of their kids' lives so all of this wasn't just in vain. I mean, we see that also with the father of one of the victims in the Oklahoma uh, horror house that is just coming out that you guys did a show about yesterday. He's already out there, um, you know, trying to make change and trying to enact laws about sex offenders in the neighborhood and how people should have to be, you know, he's already, I mean, this is only, she was only found a couple of days ago. He's already out there trying to get the legislature to listen to try and prevent this from ever happening again. So right. I think a lot, some people can really gain strength from something like this. And it's, it's a weird thing to say, but I think we see it a lot. Uh, with the parents of, of victims of, of horrifying things like this. You know, I want to go back to Ethan Chapin, uh, Chapin's mother. And the other heartbreaking thing about Ethan Chapin is that he was a triplet. So can you imagine his brother and his sister? Now it's like losing an arm or a leg. It's, you know, twins. Uh, I know that, you know, they feel pain when they're not even together uh, of each other. And I would imagine the same is true for triplets. A cold case. And, you know, they actually have done thousands of tips. They've actually had 150 interviews. So it's not as though they're not doing anything. And they are working. State, local, and federal authorities are all helping. So they're doing something. But their biggest issue right now is the fact that they have miscommunicated mm -hmm. and the fact that they're withholding information. They haven't said what was going on. They need to make sure that what they're doing is communicated to the public. Now, I understand they don't want to communicate all of their leads, but at the same time, we need to know what's going on here. Brian. You know, folks, we remember uh, early on in this investigation and, and the press, as we, we see them, and I, I don't consider us to be the press. We're content creators on YouTube. We're a little bit different. I never call myself a journalist the way most of those broadcasters shouldn't call themselves journalists either. Because they were like really put so much pressure on the Moscow Police Department. After six weeks, they were calling it a cold case. That is journalistic irresponsibility. 
I just want to throw that out there because we live this case too. And I worked, I worked murders. I was in a sergeant Manhattan North Homicide Squad, one of the busiest homicide squads in the world, and I did that for ten years. So I know six weeks on a murder is not a cold case, and it pains me to hear these idiots behind the microphone insisting it's now a cold case. Because you know what? We're spoiled little brats, just like the kids on the on these computers that they don't get instant gratification. They're whining to their mother and their father, hey, 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 you know, and that's the press. It's disgusting. No comments from you guys on it's that? It's disgusting. <laughs> you are right. Everybody wants everything wrapped up in an hour, like an episode of CSI or Criminal Minds, and it just doesn't work that way. Look, it took how long did it take for them to arrest Murdoch? You know, right. a year and a half? It took yeah. it took a year for them to arrest the woman who poisoned her husband with fentanyl that, that wrote a book about grief after she killed her husband. It took them a year to arrest her. So, you know, in the grand scheme of things, seven weeks to catch a killer of four beautiful students, I don't think is a very long time, but, you know. You know, Melanie, someone actually said that uh, today. One of the news reporters said, why did it take a year to arrest this woman who poisoned? I feel like saying, please, retire from journalism. You know, are you kidding me? <laughs> Billy, to shift back to the victims in the Idaho case, uh, Zana Canodal, Ethan Chapin, Madison Morgan, and Kaylee Gonzalez, those families, and I've said this before, and I'm going to say it now, those families are never going to be the same again. Uh, they talk about closure. There is no closure if you lose a child, in my opinion. I think that, well, maybe you'll be able to get justice for your child and maybe you'll be able to move forward. You're never going to get closure because something unnatural happened. Uh, we bury our parents. Uh, I think that's kind of like a natural thing. Very, very hurtful. It's the number one most stressful thing that goes on in your life is losing a parent. A child is not even on the chart when it comes to something like that, losing a child. So I don't think that there's going to be closure. I think that someone like Anna, uh, a therapist, can possibly help people to get through it and right. to be able to move forward. But uh, in my opinion, in these traumatic cases, even a person that survives a traumatic incident, I don't think there's closure for them. They have to you know, uh, intensively uh, go through therapy because as the way it was explained to me, when you go through a traumatic experience, you take it in and you have to find a way to release it. You have to release it or else it bubbles up in different areas of your life. You know, Anna, I want you to, um, I'm going to give you the whole screen and I want you to talk about um, how, what, you know, the, the community of Moscow, Idaho, the college campus, the yeah. friends, the family members, and of course, I'm listing all different categories of people, but let's even talk about the Moscow community. How sure. do they recover from this horrific, horrific incident? Well, first of all, what I wanted to mention is that whenever we're, whenever we go through something like this, I think it's really important what we saw with the mother, what we see with you know the family members of the, of the four kids in Idaho, uh, the parents being in the media, this is their energy right now. They are energized to come to some sort of answer or to, or to you know to understand more about who did this to their kids. What in some ways puts off the deep grieving they're going to have to do, and they're going to have to do it, and they will do it at some point in their lives. It's not today. It's the it's the energy. So 
the energy is what's helping them get through. And I do believe that they are grieving. They're probably not doing the deep grieving that is waiting for them. You, it's like your shadow. You cannot run from this grief that is coming. So that's one thing I wanted to say earlier about whenever I see the parents in the Idaho case and um, on the media, I thought, okay, this is exactly what the, they need to be doing right now. They need to be getting out there, taking action, because it feels like you're doing something. We need to feel like we're doing something. And so that's important for them in their coping right now. What's going to happen is later on down the road, probably not till this, if this goes to trial, uh, the Idaho case, but all of these horrific traumas, it's not until it's all done and it's over that they're then going to really, really grieve. It's when the media is gone, the cameras are gone, everyone's gone home. We're not talking about it so much anymore that they're going to really need a community around them. So I wanted to say that about the, the immediate family members. With communities like Moscow, with the, the college kids, the town, the people that worked in those bars, worked in those restaurants, they're all being affected. That is what we call a secondary trauma. You know, as a therapist, over all the years, I worked in trauma, I worked in child abuse, was one of my first jobs out of graduate school. Um, oh my gosh, the things that I saw, probably a little bit like we, what you all saw. I mean, things you just can never unsee and things you can never unhear. It's that secondary trauma that, that is affected in the same way. And what's so important is that they reach out and they get the help that they need, that anything you are experiencing is not too little. So, you know, we call it, there are big T traumas and there's little T traumas. Most of us in our lives have little T traumas. So all of these community members, these, these kids who went to those schools uh, in Moscow, maybe the University of Washington, the whole area, even if you're like someone like me in Chicago and I'm watching this on the news, it can be too much. Anybody, if they feel like they're losing sleep or they're just, maybe they're irritated, they feel like they're obsessing about these cases, I would recommend all of those people go talk to somebody. It is worth it. And your issues are not too little. Because we're all secondarily traumatized by what we're seeing on the in the media today. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to play a little bit of this. This happened right after it. And this reporter is talking to a couple of the students in regards to the trauma that they were feeling from this. I'm talking to students here on the University of Idaho's campus. I came across a young man who was good friends with Ethan Chapin. And he told me what it's been like to face this Tragic loss. Watch. I knew Ethan and Xana. What do you remember about them? They were really good people. I always loved seeing them whenever they were around campus. Ethan was a good friend of mine, so it's pretty sad. But I came back because I still want to keep pursuing my dreams. But you know, it was—it's definitely a lot hard for people to come back, especially after that. Yeah. Do you think it's brought the community, this university, closer together, or has it fractured the campus? I mean, I would definitely say it fractured it, as you know, not a lot of people are here. Yeah. But in a way, it's brought us together, especially just the Moscow community yeah. and Idaho in general. How do you feel about them not catching the person that that did this? Is that completely shocking to you right now? Or I mean, given the little amount of evidence that they have 
and have found. It's not too surprising that they haven't found the the suspect, but yeah. it's it's still just disheartening. Wow. So, you know, that was right after it. And you, let's not forget, this occurred November 13th. So what did the students do right after that? They go home for Thanksgiving. And what he was referring to is many of them never came back because it was terrifying to be on campus because they didn't catch this killer yet. And that's also where a lot of the pressure on the police department came in. A lot of it came from the media was that five weeks, four weeks, they haven't caught him yet. You know, like bring in the FBI and give the case to the FBI, give the case to the Idaho state police. Like we listened to all that crap and the Moscow police, we look, we doubted them too. They're a small little police department that investigated one murder in seven years. We had our doubts, but they did all the right things. They called in the big guns. They called in the Idaho state police and they called in the FBI. They knew they couldn't handle this case by themselves to their credit. They did the right thing and they called the people in, but, we as cops, first of all, we have a, a natural disdain for the press as it is, just because we've seen over a police career how they work. And uh, so we have a built-in disdain for the press. And here we are doing it. Well, not journalists, I'm saying, but we're doing what they do. And I think we do it as, as good or better than they, they do. We Melanie, report facts. We report facts. That's right. Melanie, your thoughts? I'm going to say something that might be a little bit unpopular here, but I find what he did kind of gross for him to, to go around and he had nothing else to report on. So he's going around trying to get reactions from the other students in, in, at the university. I'm offended by that. I have three daughters in high school and tragically one of their friends was killed in a car accident very recently, coupled within the past year. And the press came to the school and tried to get interviews from high school students outside of the high school because they just wanted comments. I thought it was disgusting and I'm, I'm horrified by it. Like really, they couldn't find anybody else to talk to. They had to go out and, and these kids are already traumatized, right, Nana? Like why do they have to compound it? Totally. Yeah, I mean, if I could just say, if I hadn't seen that footage before, if you look at that, that college kid, that boy, he looks shell-shocked. He looks glazed over. He looks like he's almost, he's dissociating a little bit. He is still in the initial stages of, of shock. And that is not somebody that that uh, uh, um, press person should have been talking to. I mean, that it's, it is disgusting. I agree with you, Melanie. I was looking at that boy going, get away from him. I mean, mm -hmm. why are you talking to him? He doesn't even look like he's come, understandably so. He's like not in his right mind. It, it took courage for him to go back to school when half the school didn't come. Right. It's just, you know, and, and Lorraine, I agree. He is a good reporter and I do like him very much. And I'm sure that he was told to try and go get some reactions from some of the students on the campus. Personally, I don't think it was was the right thing to do. He, he crossed an ethical line, Melanie. I agree with you. Uh, I he like did it. some great reporting. I, I, I do like uh, Lawrence Jones myself and uh, he's uh, pretty good with most of what he does. But there was also uh, he also interviewed the family and some things were coming out of uh one of the family members' uh, mouth that was uh, kind of, I think, stymieing an investigation or maybe uh, creating controversies and, and conspiracy theories. So, again, maybe it's not intentional. Like you said, they're trying to do their job. Uh, a family member wants to sit, and then all of a sudden things are coming out that the police don't want out. So that, that does happen. And, and as now far we have as a gag this, order, and that's why it, we have a gag order now. Exactly, exactly. And, and Melody, you know what's, what's more uh, disheartening is because of the gag order, 
the the press is trying to dig where they don't belong. Mm -hmm. And when we hear these reports from someone close to the investigation, that's disgusting because that person close to the investigation is breaking the law. Yeah. And the press is reporting on someone who just broke the law and they're reporting on that stuff. And I wouldn't doubt it's someone in law enforcement because uh, I'm not going to get into why I think that, but there is. It's absolutely someone in law enforcement. I don't blame the press, things. though, Billy. When it comes to that, I don't blame the press. I, if there's a gag order, I blame the person that's opening their mouth to the press because the press gets a scoop. You know, they, they have their sources. They don't have to reveal their sources. So I'm really not uh, so much upset with them when these gag orders are broken. It's more the people, like you said, it's probably someone close to the case that's given information and shouldn't be. And we didn't like it when we were still on the job and, and things would leak out that we didn't want out in the press. It would happen and we would be pissed. And uh, I think that that person who was, you know, uh, opening their mouth, those are the people who should be focused on and punished. This is uh, a tape of after Brian Koberger was arrested. Let's see what they have to say here. I think a lot of us are relieved. Um, my granddaughter actually is a student at the University of Idaho. So she has been doing online classes since this has occurred. Uh, she'll be back next week. And it's because we do have a suspect in custody now. Something of this caliber is pretty hard to wrap your head around because you, you hear it and you don't expect it in a community or a college town this small. Um, it, it was just shocking. And I think it left a lot of us in, in that state for quite a while. But having, you know, somebody like that who is a TA, I mean, like being a TA myself, I, you know, I mean, like if I were like his students or something, it's, it's going to be like so shocking. And maybe at some point I'll just... Um, think that maybe, you know, I was a target, you know, of some sort or because like you never know, right? I mean, everyone's going to say right now, you know, locking the doors, you know, being safe and not being extra cautious. I mean, it's an unfortunate situation, you know, to happen, especially in students, same my age, same with our age, across the street and campus. Um, we just got to be more aware, you know what I mean? You know, lock your doors, be aware of your surroundings. Um, so now the only thing we can do is prevent future things from happening. Yeah, it's been pretty heavy. Um, I think I was reading the affidavit today and um, it's just really uh, evil, I think, for lack of a better word. And um, that's correct. I think initially it was just really shaking because we're, we're really close to it. Um, and I've lived in lots of different places where I was oh, needing to be aware of my safety in different ways. But I think that... Um, it happening here was just really odd. Um, so yeah, it's just been pretty heavy. Uh, well, now that they caught the guy, uh, I'm not as afraid, but the like week or two after the murders, especially because the, there was like no evidence or not evidence, but uh, no details. It just, it felt scary. Uh, I work at the, the swim center and I have to normally walk a fair distance between my car and my work. And sometimes it's late. And it, it was it was scary. I didn't I didn't feel comfortable doing it. So you see, I mean, how the campus was uh, just in shock. Until this is over, till this he say he pleads guilty or he, it goes to trial, till this case is over, I don't see Moscow, Idaho, going back to pre 
quadruple mm -hmm. murder of Ethan Chapin, Zayna Canodal, Madison Mogan, and Katie Gonzalez. I don't see it going back to normal for 20, 25 years. You know, it's going to take that long for this town to heal. Billy, I just want to make a parallel. If you think of the world on September the 10th, 2001, and you think on of the world on September the 12th, uh, two different worlds. I think the same exact things happening in Moscow, Idaho. Uh, it, it's just going to be never the same again, unfortunately. And I think there might be some relief when this case goes forward and we go to the trial and we hear further details and hopefully uh, he gets convicted. But uh, that town is never going to be the same again. Anna, you want to say something? There is a collective shock that we were uh, watching right there in that footage and they will move into a collective grief. And I'm hoping, and I believe that Moscow, Idaho is offering services to this, even to this day for community members, if they, you know, reduce fees, maybe, or free therapy, uh, hopefully uh, group sessions for the college kids, for residents of Moscow to come and meet together as a group, because that could be very healing as well as individual therapy. But this is going to go on Four years as well it needs to absolutely i think this saturday actually they are awarding two of the students i guess who are the closest to getting their degree they're awarding them honorary degrees and there was doing something for the other two i'm not someone sent me an email about it it's in the moscow uh, paper those are the type of things that are sort of heartwarming that the school yeah. is doing something like that we you know when right after this happened they had a really bad problem with messaging. And instead of the messaging coming from the police department, it came from the mayor. And the mayor made such a horrific statement that it almost they almost couldn't recover from it. So they've learned a lot since that. And what they learned was to keep your mouth shut for the most part. Melanie? Are you going to play the clip from the mayor? Uh, no, I yeah, don't have I, uh, that. I don't have that. Yeah. I mean, look, there, there's the, the ripple effects of the trauma is enormous. You know, it, it's not just the parents who suffer when a child is lost. It's the siblings of, of the of the child. It's the grandparents. It's the um, because, you know, and if you have a lot of kids like I do, anytime one of the kids isn't home, the whole dynamic inside of the house changes. So imagine if one of your children or your siblings is is now gone. You know, the guilt that you have and the attention that's focused on the child who's gone. And then there's no attention maybe for the kids that are left. And it just it, it I'm sure that it just tears apart the whole family um, for forever. How do you ever go back to normal? 100%. And I know that people don't like the term new normal, but that's what mm -hmm. it's going to be for these families. And I, and I hate to say that, but they will have to move into a new normal with that family member gone. I, like you, Melanie, have five kids, and I have one that just graduated. My number four graduated college this past weekend, and we've got number five who's a, a junior at Western Michigan. And this case in Idaho really affected me because I went to a school like the University of Idaho. That experience of living with all my housemates and doors open at night, partying till mm -hmm. four in the morning, that was my college experience. And that's the experience of many of my kids. We're outgoing, fun, loving people, and that's that really hit home for me. And I can't imagine And my daughter who's, you know, she's 25 now, she went to school in Denver and she said, mom, she said, that was us. She goes, we never locked the doors. She's like, you never even knew who was in the house because, you know, guys are coming in and out like girls, you know, 
you know, you didn't know what was going on. Uber Eats is dropping food off. This is just two, two years ago. And yeah. so this hit home, not just for me, but all of my kids, we've all talked about this and I've told all of them, lock your doors now, you know, in your condos and please, you know, and head on a swivel. I always say them to, they're getting tired of it. Head on a swivel guys, head on a swivel. Everybody head on a swivel because this case Good is advice. really personally. Absolutely. You know, this is a video of the, the families speaking out after the arrest. I want to play a little bit of this. Nearly seven long winter weeks, life in the scenic small town of Moscow, Idaho, upended. A town of just 26,000 shrouded in sorrow following the murders of those four young lives. While we cannot bring back Maddie, Kaylee, Zana, and Ethan, we can thoughtfully and purposefully carry their legacy forward in the work that we do. Tonight, the family's still steeped in grief, but hopeful for justice. Kara Northington, the mother of victim Zana Kernodal, telling NBC News, it's been a nightmare. This whole thing has been a nightmare, literally. But I feel like a huge weight has lifted off my shoulders. But it's been a long road. If everybody was like Ethan Chapin in this world, yeah. it would be a better place. As the weeks tick by, with little new information in a place that hasn't had a previous homicide in seven years, criticism against local law enforcement swelled. Moscow Police Chief James Fry, promising the trail wasn't cold, pledging to bring justice, visibly impacted. I'm a dad um, with daughters, and um, that's tough. Through Thanksgiving, through Christmas, the victims' families desperate for answers. It's sleepless nights. It's feeling sick to your stomach. It's crying. Campus became a ghost town. To know that they had lost their lives so easily was very uh, humbling. And a somber graduation like Zalvez should have walked. Kaylee's family telling us through an attorney they're relieved that the authorities have someone in custody and that now the journey through the criminal justice system begins. Steve Patterson, NBC News. Folks, this is Police Off The Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell, make comments. We love to read your comments. We love to respond to as many of them as we can. If you want to support us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels. We also have a YouTube channel memberships with five different levels. You see the folks in the chat in the green font. They're part of our YouTube family subscribers, friends, fans, whatever you want to call them. We appreciate them, and hopefully they appreciate us. Uh, we're going to get back to the, this case. It's just, you know, I think these are some of the most important uh, the important stories we do because I think it really shows not just the human side of us, but the human side of law enforcement. We bring on a great guest like Anna Marcoline and, of course, Melanie, the rising superstar in the podcast world. <laughs> and uh, it's 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 an important thing I uh, to talk about I think and not enough I mean we're not trying to sensationalize it we're trying to talk about it from the uh, psychological point of view and that's why we brought on an expert like Anna Markeline. Can I point out something uh, in the chat? Absolutely. Okay, so Angel Ty, I think it says Angel Ties says I'm beyond grateful to all of you for treating this subject. Just last week we've had the first case of school shooting in our country. The community is shattered. I'm literally taking notes. I don't know where you live, but I'm very, very sorry. And what breaks my heart is that when I was in elementary school, I would have nightmares about forgetting my locker combination. 
My children have nightmares about being shot in school. It is not the way it was when we were kids. No. These kids should not have to go through these lockdown drills in school that they have every other week where they have to hide in closets and under desks. And, um, you know, how do you get over something like that? I went to college in Colorado. So when Columbine happened in 99, that was like very close to my heart. Um, and now it seems like there's a school shooting, you know, every other week. Terrible. Terrible. You know, I think we could that the schools are offering enough. You know, what do you what do you do as a community? I think we could all relate. We all have children. I have three daughters that are college days. And when the Idaho case took place back in November, all three of my daughters were in college. So obviously extremely concerned. We're all on high alert. And in the beginning, when uh, uh, Kohlberger wasn't in custody, uh, I was fully in agreement with people not going back to that college because we didn't know what it was at the time. However, the police did a great job and they were able to make an arrest within six weeks, thank God, and take that evil son of a bitch off the streets. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's near and dear to our hearts when you have uh, college-age children and something like this happens. And, Melanie, you're talking about the school shootings. I mean, it, it, it's sometimes twice in a week it happens. And I just don't know what the answer is. I think that... The biggest problem with the school shootings is the mental health aspect. And uh, I don't know if the country's afraid to face it, the reality. Uh, there's, there's millions and millions of guns in, in the country. We're not going to take the guns away. I think that the trigger pull is what we have to focus on. And obviously, we've done shows on this before, uh, hardening up the targets. The schools need to be more secure. And uh just, uh, it's terrible that children have to go through that, Melanie. I couldn't agree yeah, with you I mean, more. I just feel like it's, our it's children tragic. have it's so tragic. much more trauma as a generation than we had as children. Anna, maybe you yeah. could speak to that a little bit, especially with the COVID lockdowns and the, you know, the, the social skills, the, the amount of, of schooling that they lost. I mean, it's, it's tragic. It really is. It's a multi-layered issue that we are, I think we're still reeling from COVID, from the school shootings, from these horrible murders. And I think that it's, there's not one answer. And I think that we're, unfortunately, I agree with you, Melanie, this is something that I grew up in the seventies. This is not a thing in our world, right? I mean, we have to now start probably teaching these kids trauma therapy at a young age as a prevention, as a prevention, mm -hmm. preventative treatment to six and seven, eight-year-olds start getting them ready for trauma. This is the world we're living in, unfortunately, today. I mean, I think that there's lots of ideas about what we can do, but um, it, I live in Highland Park, Illinois. So we had the 4th of July shooting here last year, and I didn't go there because the night before we had a, a party in our backyard and I didn't get up to go. And I had uh, clients there. I had friends who were at that parade. And we know the kid who shot Bobby Cremo, say his horrible. He's in jail for the rest of his life who shot these people. And I'm telling you that really got to me. It never hit home. I had a hard time. I was a therapist. I went to the high school. I helped with the whole trauma team, the counseling. And then I had to go away. I went up to Wisconsin to my friend's lake house by myself for three days because I was going to have a nervous breakdown. It's we all need help. We, I needed help. I needed someone to help me. I needed my mental health was starting to go down the tubes because as you all may know, I mean, you start to get burnt out. You know, this compassion fatigue and burnout, it's its a very real thing. So we've got to 
start taking care of the helpers even more so that we can, you know, be energized to be of service and to give to those who also really need it. So it's a, it's a multi-layered issue and one that we have to treat people with compassion and with empathy. And it's, there's some system-wide uh, program that we need to, we need to get going in this country, unfortunately. Absolutely. You know, I, I could tell you when the one thing that 9-11 that really affected me a lot was um, I worked at the morgue a few times and it was early on a couple of days after it. And when I saw the conditions of the bodies that were brought in there and just the body parts and the way it smelled and the, the cops and the firemen that were brought in there, it was just too much, you know, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't yet in the homicide, but I later on did 10 years in homicide and I never saw anything after that day as bad as what I saw in 9-11. And I saw lots of murder scenes, but the bodies I saw in 9-11 was the most absolutely horrific scenes that I've ever seen in my entire police career. You know? And I hope to God you never will see anything like that. Ever yeah, again. I hope so too, you know. Ever again. That's, that's, a, that's truly a war zone. I, I think of you no differently than I think of any of um, the clients who've come back from uh, the military, the combat from Vietnam. That's where PTSD, that uh, coined, uh, phrase was coined from the Vietnam veterans. I think of you no differently than I think of any of um, our troops that have come back from Afghanistan, um, the Gulf War, um, or Iraq. It's exactly you know, that's a That's a great see, a saying, Anna, though you can't unsee something. And nope. that's. Mm -hmm. 100% true. Or yeah. unremember. You can work on you can work on diminishing the the acuity of the memory. And that's what's really key is the memory may always be there but you can bring down the acuity level of the memory. And that's how we move into a place of more peace and contentment and we don't have so many difficult memories that wake us up in our sleep or have us be hypervigilant or have us like jumping out of our our seat in a restaurant when we hear a loud crash. There's therapies that can really help with that and that we can be happier. And I just want to tell you about my experience on 9-11 real quick. Um, when I was, uh, I was at home when the buildings collapsed and I got to the scene later that afternoon. And for some reason, when I came through the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, which was the tunnel that led from Brooklyn into Manhattan, uh, you could see the destruction. And uh, my brain, my mind just didn't want to process it for whatever reason. Uh, it took a very long time for me to understand what I was seeing, to see 210 story buildings crumpled to the ground that I had been by there just a couple of days before. It was just very, very uh, difficult for me to process it and understand it, that it was true. It, it, it seemed fake, uh, surreal, I guess is the word that they use, but uh, I had a really hard time with, with processing it. It was just, and when I tell people about it, what you saw in the news was one thing, it was horrific. But when you saw uh, the World Trade Center at your feet, it was something else. It, to see it live was just something else. And I know that Bill uh, understands what I'm saying, and, and I'm trying to just explain it to you guys. It was just real, very surreal, I guess is the word. You were flooded. You were flooded. All of your senses were flooded, and your brain, you were overwhelmed, and your brain shut down because you, we are not meant to handle. That's not how we have evolved. We are not meant to be able to manage and cope with something like that. So what the brain does is just goes into total shutdown mode. And that was how you coped. Okay. 
It makes sense. Well, you know, you learn, you learn as a as a cop, as a first responder. You learn, you see things from day one on the police department, and you learn how to deal with it. And if you don't, you know, you'll you wind up uh, drowning your sorrows at a bar, or you, you know, like people would always ask me, "Oh, how do you deal with this?" I said, "Well, I'll tell you how I deal with it. I have a good family. I go, I work out every single day that I'm not working." And I have outlets to, to that I you know that I work with, and I, I've been known to sit at a ball once in a while too. <laughs> so uh, although I didn't drown my sorrows in it, but Bill, I was... how, how about talking about it with colleagues? I always found that when something traumatic happened, and we went back to the office and and discussed it or talked about it, that was always helpful. Or like you said, maybe have a cocktail over it and talk about it. That was always therapeutic for me personally. Obviously, you don't want to drink too much and become, you know, an alcoholic. But did you find that that was helpful, Bill? Absolutely. You know, the the great suicide doctor, Dr. Stephen Washtel of the NYPD, brilliant man. I said that to him. I said, Doc, uh, is it okay to go out drinking after? He goes, absolutely. You know, I was expecting him to say, no, don't do that. He was like, absolutely, you should go out for a drink. And have a few if you want. He goes, but if it becomes a problem, then you got to curtail that, you know. You don't want to lean on it too much. No, no. I thought you were going to say Dr. Kevorkian. I'm like, you know Dr. No, Kevorkian? No, the great Dr. Guy. Stephen, Dr. what? I did too. Dr. Stephen Washkel is a um, suicide prevention expert, and he works with the NYPD. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. He's been on the show before. And is it true that um, – I know from the therapy that I went through that they want to describe PTSD as just PTS to take the, the negative connotation off it. That it's a disorder. Are you hearing about that? I haven't heard about that as of late. Maybe there's information out there that, that I don't have. It's, you know, it's an access one diagnosis in the DSM, which is our, the Bible for, um, you know, psychology field to diagnose. I have not heard that. Um, I don't think it would be such a bad thing. You know, the reason why we diagnose people, I'm not really a label person. And I tell my clients this all the time. I don't really like diagnosing someone with a uh, personality disorder, even anxiety or, or a mood disorder. But we need to diagnose in order to, clients want to know what they're dealing with. If there's a name for it, it is very helpful to know what it is that they're dealing with. But we need to know what PTSD is. We need to, to name it claim it, and then know how to treat it. So, you know, that's what I care about is PTA, post-traumatic stress disorder. Maybe they're going to take out the word disorder because maybe it's not politically correct. That is changing in my world. You know, we, I would say like cognitive behavioral therapy is a form of therapy that we do for trauma treatment. And we talk about there's thought distortions that we need to work on. We need to change our thought distortions. Now they're saying, say unhelpful thought patterns. All right, well, it's unhelpful, unhelpful thought patterns or thought distortions, either way, it doesn't matter. We're still gonna do the work. So maybe there's something to taking out the, the term disorder, but the treatment I, is going to stay the same. Yeah, I think the treatment should obviously stay the same and the clinical diagnosis of PTSD, I think should stay the same, but right. I think they wanna make it less uh, of a disorder so that way it's casually spoken about PTS. And I think that might encourage people that could be having episodes to co, you know, to go seek out help. You know, nobody wants to be labeled with a disorder or anything like that. So I think that, uh, listen, I'm, I'm the first one to admit that I uh, was diagnosed with PTSD and, and, uh, you know, I, uh, did seek out, uh, therapy and I'm, I'm doing very, very well with it, 
but there are people that, you know, they don't want to have that negative connotation and the the, the macho, you know, especially with with law enforcement. Well, there are, there are stress disorders in the DSM, not there's Pete. So there's post-traumatic stress disorder. There are other uh, um, stress disorders that are in the DSM. So that might be also what they're leading more towards too, is taking out the disorder and, and many people have uh, post uh, stress of any kind. It doesn't have to be around a trauma. Right. Iron Range Rube, thank you so much for the $20 super sticker. As someone who was stabbed several times, and I have dealt with PTSD for the last over 10 years, I appreciate every single one of you on this panel. Well, thank you very much. This is um, a little bit of a tough subject to talk about. You know, uh, for us, we've been through this stuff and, um, you know, we've seen horrific things, you know, and I wear it like a badge of honor, though, you know. And when you guys are talking about certain um, words, the police department keeps taking away good words. They don't want us to use the word perpetrator anymore. Now (laughs) uh, an emotionally disturbed person is not disturbed anymore. He's distressed. They they want to make it kinder and gentler. Oh, you're not disturbed. You you know what it used to be when I came on the job? Well, a few years ago. Psycho. Psycho. That's a psycho. (laughs) Now they forget that. If you said that, they'd fire you, you know? But the mostly disturbed person, and we, you know, cops just use the uh, the the letters, the uh, EDP. EDP. It's an EDP, you know, and we we use that in our own life. And people, what what's that? And when they hear it, they find it so funny because there's so many acronyms in police work as there is in in the service and stuff like that. Yeah, she's an EDP. Oh, he's an EDP. He's a perp, my, you know. <laughs> my father, my father used to say nut job. You say that today? Forget about it. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely politically incorrect. You know, guys, I want to just, why would on this topic, I want to talk a little bit about Alec Murdoch because there's a person that, you know, he's done tremendous, tremendous damage and not just the murder of his son, Paul, and his wife, Maggie, but to that entire community. He was stealing, he stole about between 10 and $12 million dollars you can't even imagine the other crimes he must have committed. Think of this man. What kind of damage did he do to that community? Not to mention his family. Of course, his family, his, the son that's still alive, I think his name is Buster. What is his life going to be like? Uh, and he, I found myself, when I was watching that trial, even hating the rest of his family, you know, because of what he did. You know, and that they were going to become just like him or his son was going to become just like him. Melanie, since you're an attorney, I'm going to let you comment on this. Well, I also think his family (laughs) totally enabled him. I mean, his brothers were always right there enabling him, uh, showing up at crime scenes, trying to take away evidence. The whole Stephen Smith uh, hit and run that they're now calling a homicide because nobody really looked into it in the first place, you know. That that generational trauma, I mean, the generations of his family that ruled that little corner of South Carolina. I mean, the the it, the roots run deep. And there were a lot of people affected by that family. I want to play a little bit of this and then we'll get right back to it. Oh, OK. And she was at the base of the front steps. She was. Alec Murdoch, in his own words, explaining to an insurance investigator how his late housekeeper died at Moselle. Now in a lawsuit, Murdoch's saying his dogs didn't cause Gloria Satterfield's fall. Welcome back to Sidebar here on Law and Crime. I'm Anjanette Levy. 
Alec Murdoch's insurance company, Nautilus, is suing him. Nautilus wants the $3.8 million back that it paid out when the family's housekeeper, Gloria Satterfield, slipped and fell at their home and then later died in 2018. This insurance payout came up in Murdoch's double murder trial when Gloria's son, Tony Satterfield, testified that Murdoch approached him about suing his insurance company. Um, after she passed, uh, did you have any conversation with Alec uh, about what to do about it? Uh, I did. And what was the conversation you had with Alec? Uh, I barely uh, remember what it was like, um, you know, let me go out to my insurance company for this or whatever, you know, kind of get these medical bills and stuff paid. Okay. You know, amazing, because now it's coming out, he said, that's not how she died. She didn't trip over the dogs. But what can you, out of this guy's mouth, what can possibly be deemed as the truth? Everything is a lie. So how do you now believe that she didn't trip over the dogs? And him setting up the lawsuit of of Gloria Satterfield's children, suing his insurance company. How many times did you think he did that over his lawyer career in, in South Carolina? You know, Billy, that's self-serving, though, what he's trying to do, because he's trying to take the onus off of him, that the insurance company paid out. And if they, uh, the woman didn't trip on the dog, then th they may go after the Satterfield family for that money. So I think that's very self-serving. Can't believe a word of what comes out of that guy's mouth. That's for sure. Melanie? His insurance company is suing him because they're saying he lied about how the accident happened. I mean, that, that's what's going on here. He he. He said the dogs tripped her because he knew that if his dogs tripped her, the insurance company would pay out on a personal right. injury settlement, which they did. And I did he know that he was going to steal the money at the time? I don't know. But if he, you know, orchestrated that whole entire thing, they talk about perpetrating a fraud on an insurance company. They're going to try and claw back the money from him. So they're the money, totally within their rights to do that. Hmm? Didn't the money go to the children of Gloria Satterfield? Well, first eventually. he stole it, and then first eventually it, then they may have they may have been paid out by his law firm because they were on the hook for it, or by some you know lawyers fund that you know in New York we have a lawyers fund in case anybody gets you know kind of screwed by a lawyer. The lawyers. I fund think that's where pay. they got the money um, from. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't I don't know how they're going to claw it back because he's got nothing. He has nothing now. But I mean, the guy was a fraudster through and through. Absolutely. That's what he did. So, Anna, back to your expertise here. How do, do the crimes of Alec Murdoch affect this community of South Carolina, which is a small community, right. but that this family ran this town, this community for over 100 years? Well, they may feel that they're no longer imprisoned mentally, emotionally, psychologically. There's an imprisonment that was going on in that community. They all knew that this was a sort of mafia you keep your head down, you keep your mouth shut or else because you didn't know what was going to happen in the dark where you weren't looking. You know, I really believe that this is a, and I'm not an expert in, I don't think this is psychopathy. I think that Murdo is a sociopath, but it's, it's like a, it, it, there's something almost evil that penetrated through this family. And it's a difficult one. I mean, when you talk about uh, uh, Gloria Satterfield, I think Maggie pushed her. Maybe I shouldn't be saying that on this show. Oh, on this live, but I, I really was like, I think that woman was pushed. So I followed that. I followed that intensely too. And I, it, it's so, so interesting from a psychological perspective, but I think that that community 
is probably unlike Idaho, they're breathing a sigh of relief that maybe now there will be peace. Maybe now, you know, all of the manipulation, the fear, because we, there's so much more that went on with this family that we don't know about. That's not on the news. Maybe now they can, they can rest and, and have some peace and, and, just relax and get back into enjoying that the community that they live in. Because I think that those people were walking on eggshells for years. They couldn't speak. There were all these secrets. You're a, we say in therapy, this is really from the world of 12 steps, you're as sick as your secrets. So if, if this community had a lot of secrets, this was a sick community. And now they can start to heal and now they can move more into health and wellness because that guy is in jail. And hopefully, you know, um, these other cases will be solved with a, um, the, uh, what's it, Stephen Smith. Mm-hmm. Starting to come to the light, you know, and, and shame, it comes out. It comes into the light and no more shame. And it's time to just be, you know, be, be liberated and have peace. So that's what I think more about that community is that I think that they're starting probably to have more peace. And thank God the cat is out of the bag and we can, we can move on with our lives. 100%. It's uh, Phil, I just wanted you to do the uh, Joe Murray commercial. So if you watch police off the cuff, real crime stories, you know that we fully advocate for Joe Murray attorney at law. Uh, Joe's a retired member of the NYPD, 15 years of service in the NYPD. So he literally knows both sides of defense. You know, if you have a need for a criminal defense attorney in the New York area, Joe Murray's not only a attorney and a former police officer, he's also a boxer. He might be able to deliver that knockout punch on your case. You can reach Joe at jmurray-law.com. That's his website. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. You know, guys, this was... um we're already over an hour. It went really fast to tell you the yeah. truth, but it's such uh, an important topic. And I could, I could see just even reading some of the chats. There's some people that were very much affected by the things that we were saying. I saw and, that too, uh, Billy. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's important. And, you know, this might not have been the show that is the blockbuster show, but these are the important shows. I think that we do uh, the shows that we try to give back a little bit to our audience. And, Anna, I really want to, uh, you're a great guest. I really want to thank you for coming on. And, and I encourage you um, to do your podcast on YouTube. It's it's not an easy transition. It's tough. I'm also on Spotify. And um, it, it's like, it, it, this is a full-time job, believe it or not. And uh, between the research and going on. And, you know, after I get off the air, I spend another 45 minutes doing computer work in connection with the, not that, Anyone listening gives a shit, but I'm just saying it's a lot of work to this. And uh, I can attest to it. He does yeah. a ton of behind the scenes yeah, stuff. We're we talking about that. So yes, much. we do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, it's, a, it's a labor of love. I really do. I really do love to do it. Uh, what I do now is I throw it around. I'm going to start with Melanie. Melanie, your final thoughts. Wow. I, I, you know, a lot of people in the chat were affected by this and, you know, some of the things people were talking about 9-11 and I just remember after 9-11 having, being in New York, I think we were a lot more affected than people in other parts of the country. But I do remember for a very long time after every time I heard a plane overhead, 
I, I had like this visceral reaction to it, mm-hmm. you know, and every time I was on a flight after 9-11, when the plane landed, the passengers would burst out into applause. And that went on for years. Do you remember like the clapping when yeah, it would yeah. land for so long? So, you know, trauma is a real thing. And I think now post COVID, you know, Zoom and these kind of virtual meetings are so much easier and, and a lot of therapy is done online now. So I yeah. think everyone needs a therapist. I think everyone should find a therapist. And now that insurance will pay for you to do your therapy online through Zoom, it's so easy to find someone that you can connect with. And I highly recommend it. Thank you, Melanie. Uh, Anna, <laughs> your final your final thoughts? Well, thanks so much for having me. And I this is a, a deep discussion, but such an important one. And for anyone that's listening I would recommend, just like Melanie said, find a therapist. If you are dealing with any sort of symptoms of sadness, anxiety, if you're not sleeping, if you're finding that your thoughts, you feel like you're alone and you're living in your head, or you're dealing with some sort of trauma, it goes back to your childhood, something you witnessed, you experienced yourself or you witnessed, please don't hesitate to reach out. There's so many resources out there of people who we are trained in this and we know how to help you. You can feel better. All right. So, you know, there's always hope. And uh, there are people out there who, you know, like I said, we can help you. So, and thanks so much for having me on. And thanks for this discussion. I really appreciate it. I think we can't talk about mental health enough today. So what Melanie said is true. Everything, I, my practice is fully online and my therapy is in Illinois, but coaching is throughout the world. So there are people out there. Who can, who can treat you? Excellent. Phil, final words. I just want to echo the words of Melanie Little and Anna. Is it Marcolin? That's how you pronounce it. Marcolin. Marcolin. Okay, Marcolin. I want to echo those words because everything that they said is 100% correct and true. I'm living proof of it. Bill's living proof of it. Uh, one other thing I just wanted to make a point. When we talked about the school shootings, even though the drills are traumatic for the children, they save lives. There's that uh, run, hide, fight is what they teach. Run if you can, hide if you can. If you can't get away, fight. Those are very, very important tools if, God forbid, you're faced with an active shooter situation. So, again, even though it's traumatic, the kids should pay attention, uh, listen to the drills, participate. They save lives. Absolutely. Folks, I just want to echo what we had uh, previously said. I think it, this was an important show. I could see there's a lot of people in the chat that are uh, suffering from different things, uh, PTSD, maybe depression, uh, just life, life in general. Life is tough. You know, it's not easy. It's not for the uh, <laughs> the faint-hearted, as they say, you know. But there is help if you need help. And, uh, you know, you can even reach out to me, police off the cuff, the number one at gmail.com. And I could direct you to the to the right place to, to, to get help. Folks, if you can, Anna, if you can stay around uh, uh, after the show ends for a little bit, we sure. usually have our our critique. We say, you didn't this. Yeah, I don't know. The debrief. Can I add yeah, one we, more thing? Sure, also, Melanie, go ahead. Look at your children. Watch your children because children need therapy too. They've been through so much. Suicide is the number one killer of teenagers right now. It's not fentanyl. It's not car accidents. It's not drugs. It's suicide. suicide. Please, you know, take an inventory of your kids. And if your kids need help, get them help. 
Call the pediatrician, get a referral, get them online. They'll talk. Thank you, Melanie. You know, there are therapists who specialize in teenagers and they can relate to them and they like the same music. And um, it's it's just, please, please do it. Thank you. Thank Melanie. That's my PSA. Well, thank you for that. That was that was very much appreciated. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. Thanks for listening. God bless. Have a great night. Good night, everyone. Stay safe, everyone. One episode, just ain't enough.